0: Father God, as we, as we come to your word here in a minute, Lord, we pray that you speak to us through it. That the words are, are not words just written thousands of years ago, but words that are alive because you're in them and through them and speak to us individually. Amen. All right. Uh, if you have been walking through with us in, uh, in the 2023 journey at Harbor Life, we've been working through the book of Genesis. So we've been slowly working our way through. We've made it to chapter 17. Um, or chapter 16, I'm sorry, and 17. We'll do both this morning. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been working through the life of somebody known as Abram. Today, his name will be changed to Abraham, which is more commonly understood. or It's the more common name that we can um, we hold on to. Uh, and we've seen his journey uh, throughout the last few weeks here. We've seen how he started in a place called Ur, uh, which is in modern-day Iraq near Babylon, uh, and he, which he was called out to move to the land of Canaan. And so we've been slowly working our way in that particular direction. Uh, last, we, we, we saw that, that he it required a faith to leave everything he ever knew, leave a, a, a God structure that he didn't understand, the, the God Nana, which we saw uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and move into a, a different kind of space based on the promises that God gave him. On Easter last week, we actually saw how Abraham's journey um, leads us into the crucifixion and resurrection. Last week, we talked about uh, God walking something called the blood path, which is you no know is a little weird, and if you weren't here last week, it's even weirder, <laughs> uh, in which God says, uh, I, will, I, w- I will stay to the covenant that I made with you, and I will take your side of it as well. Today, we're going to continue on the story of Abraham, and I want to jump right in because we have a lot of ground to cover in the two chapters we're going to look at today, chapter 16 and 17. So, if you have a Bible, uh, or you can look at the words on the screen, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 16:1 today, which starts this way. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had but he, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, "The Lord has kept me from having children. So go with my my uh, so go with my servant. Perhaps I can build a family through her." Abram, Abram agreed to what Sarai said, so Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, and Sarai, took, Sarai his wife, took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave, gave her to her husband to be his wife. Let's pause there for a second. Um, if you were here last week, uh, we, we realized last week, we, we, one of the points that we saw is that some of the things that in, the, in the Bible are strange, Right? This is one. Last week, again, we talked about a blood path, which is also very strange. We understand that. But one of the points that we made was that what's strange to us isn't always strange to the people that the that, that story is about. Uh, we, we had mentioned that it, whenever you pull context out of things, things that, are, that seem really weird thousands of years later... Look differently when you're in the midst of them. The example we gave last week is if imagine if somebody 2,000 years from now were just to g- gather their understanding about what American culture looks like just through TikTok, right? You would think we're really weird, right? You would, you would think that, we, that the things that we like, the things that we do, that what you want to change your face to look like a horse, that's a weird thing to do, but you can do it on TikTok, right? The things out of context seem weird. They're not weird to us. It's normal. We get it. But it is weird years later. So last week, the covenant that God made with Abraham feels really weird to us, but it was totally common in that time. doesn't mean it was right or wrong. That's not the point. The point is that it was normal. We have the same thing this week. Uh, it's easy for us, to, it, it's easy for us to, uh, to, to believe that this is a weird practice, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, uh, I, wanna, I want us to, um, to, to point out something else as well. Our timeline here. It's easy as we read through scripture sometime to think that things happen really quickly, right? So chapter 15 is right before chapter 16, and so it feels like 16 comes very quickly after 15, in which God promises Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have more kids than there are stars in the sky. And so then 16 comes, and we're like, well, this must be relatively soon after. But if you look at the passage, what we see here is that that's not the case, Abram has been living, it says, in Canaan for 10 years at this particular point. So the promise is made. He leaves his homeland. He journeys to this new place on the promise of God that he's going to have more children than stars in the sky. It's now 10 years later, and not only does he not have a lot of children, he doesn't even have one, which is a long time. It also means that Abram is 85 years old, and Sarah is 75 years old, 76 years old. So we can put ourselves in their shoes for just a minute. They've left everything they've ever known to go to Canaan on the promise that God is going to bless them with children. And like I said, not only do they not have one, they have none. And it's been 10 years. You can imagine why they're beginning to get anxious. Now the anxiety is understood, but that still doesn't resolve the weirdness of their actions, right? We might understand why they wanted to take some action, but why do they, what's the deal with having Abram marry His servant. Well, again, like we mentioned earlier, things that seem weird to us thousands of years later weren't weird in the context that we're talking about them in. Again, doesn't say anything about whether it was right or wrong, but it does kind of help us understand that it wasn't so weird. We've actually found Assyrian marriage contracts. So Assyria is that region. So it's not necessarily what Abraham would have had, but from that region and that time frame, In which those marriage contracts, there are stipulations that say if a wife does not provide her husband with offspring within two years, those stipulations actually then say that then she must get a servant to carry on the line. It's not even that she can, it's that she must inside of those ancient marriage contracts. If you actually have an NIV cultural background study Bible, it'll actually suggest that what Sarah is doing here is actually exercising this part of the marriage contract, which tells us a couple things. First, the marriage contracts would stipulate that it, she, must have, she was supposed to do it two years after not having kids. We know that they've been married far longer than that, even longer than the 10 years that we have here, and she hadn't exercised it at that point, which is an example of Abraham and Sarah's trust that God will actually provide the thing that he's made a promise to. Second, though, I wonder how many of us can relate to, to, to them in this particular scenario. Actually, Becca's story this morning fits it perfectly. We want to follow God, but the waiting is hard, and uncertainty can be really confusing, can't it? Did we miss here what God said he wanted us to do? Are we supposed to be doing something different? Is actually the waiting that we're doing not what we we're called to? Are we supposed to be taking action or doing something different or forcing the issue? We have to wrestle with this question, how long do we continue to wait versus when do we take control of the situation for ourselves? My guess is there's many of us that can relate to that struggle. Again, Becca's story is perfect for that. She's just mentioned. She's in the story of a season of waiting right now. Well, how long do we wait? The timing in hindsight was perfect. Great. But how do we know when that perfect timing is coming in the future? And that's what Abraham and Sarah are looking at right now. So let's move through the story. Abram sleeps with Hagar, and she conceives. When she knew she was pregnant, she, begins to, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai says to Abram, "'You're responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. "'I put my servant in your arms, "'and now she, that she knows she's pregnant, "'she despises me. "'May the Lord judge between you and me. "'Your servant is in your hands,' Abram said. "'Do with her what you think best.' Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. I want to pause there again, because there's some, there's some context here that, we, that we're missing in what's going on here. Now, not surprisingly, their plan doesn't work out all that well. Right? Abram takes Hagar as his wife, she becomes pregnant, and, then, and, and at this point, the relationship between the three of them, in particular between Sarai and Hagar, becomes really broken, and even puts strain on the relationship between Abram and Sarai herself. What the Bible says is that it's, Hagar begins to have contempt for or despises Sarai. She, it, she treats Sarai poorly. Bottom line, she doesn't act appropriately. That's true. But the Hebrew word here that would, would suggest more of a clash of personality, right? So, like kind of some passive-aggressive statements maybe or uh, some feelings of superiority or, or things like that, that there's, that's more of a verbal misunderstanding or not misunderstanding, verbal conflict, right? She maybe takes some swipes here and there. So Sarai goes back to Abraham. She says, Are you seeing this? What the heck's going on? Can we do something about it? And so he tells her, Do what you think is best. Now, this is where Sarai though, actually goes off the rails. So you're, if you have an English Bible, it, it, it says that Sarai mistreats Hagar. But I don't think that even comes close to fully, fully communicating what, that, what the Hebrew word here is, is, is trying to communicate. The Hebrew word for mistreats here means at its core to oppress, to humiliate, or to afflict. It's it's deeper and more significant than the despising we had earlier. Actually, to to put a little finer point on it, if we go back to what God tells Abram, just last chapter, in which he says, I'm going to give you this land of Canaan, God says this, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that is not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. We mentioned it when we began the book of Genesis that it was probably written by Moses, meaning the first readers of the book of Genesis would have been the newly freed slaves from Egypt. The word we have for mistreated here in Genesis 15 is the same one that Moses uses to talk about Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar. It's not just verbal swipes. It's abuse. The first readers of this particular passage, when they see that word, would know exactly what that mistreatment looked like because they lived it in Egypt. Moses is making a point here. When the oppressors Within the oppressed become the oppressors, chaos ensues. And we see that in this story as well. It was a warning to Israel, don't become like the Egyptians. It should be a warning like to us as well. But our story moves on. So then Sarah mistreated the same word here, so she fl- Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, "Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going?" "I'm running away from my mistress Sarai," she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, "Go back to your mistress and submit to her." The angel added, "I will increase your descendants so much that they too they will be too numerous to count." The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer La- <clears throat> Lahai And it is still there between Kadesh and Beard. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael. To, or Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So, what we have going on here is we have Sarai abusing Hagar, and so she runs, which totally makes sense. And she finds herself in a spring in the desert, exhausted, and an angel meets her there. I find it fascinating that this story, this story that we have, we have a foreign woman who's being oppressed, and it's actually the first story in the entire Bible in which we meet the angel of the Lord. The first person to be visited by an angel in Scripture is a foreign woman who's, <clears throat> who's being oppressed which I think that says a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. We could go a lot of different directions with that. But I also think it says a lot about who God is and what, and, and what he cares about. And I absolutely love the next part. God promises Hagar that she's going to flourish, and so will her son. God says, I'm going, you've been oppressed, I see you. I'll come out to get you. I'll actually send my messenger to you and then I will bless you in a big way. Obviously, the relationship between Abram and Hagar wasn't the plan that God had intended. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't continue to pursue her. And it's clear from Hagar's response that Hagar's response makes two things clear. First, that it's restorative, that it's good news for her. That God says, go back to Sarai, We have to assume that then he somehow communicated with Sarah, hey, this abuse thing has to stop. But then when you do, you're going to flourish in your son as well. That it's restorative, that it's good news to her, that this big promise matters. But we see that it's more more than that as well. That it's also incredibly intimate. It's personal. It's meaningful to, to Hagar. She says... She she gives God a name, which is El Royai, the God who sees. The God who sees me is probably a better understanding of it. I don't know about you, but I think that being seen may be something that we don't talk about often, but I think it's a deeply important part of our human experience. Aren't we all longing to be seen, like truly, actually seen, if it comes with Love. If we get seen for who we are, both good and bad, and someone says, I see that and I love you deeply, it might be one of the most meaningful things that we can experience as humans, right? We all long for that, and that's what Hagar gets in this space. It means so much to her that she actually names the well too. Bir Lahai Royai. I'm sorry, it's hard to pronounce those words. Which actually means the well of the living one who sees me. Which is just a beautiful description of her experience with God in this space. And by the way, this isn't off-brand for God either. This is one-off. This happens again in a different space. Actually, in the New Testament, if we fast forward, there was a woman who had been rejected by her entire society. And so in the middle of the day, she goes out to a well as well. And in that space, she meets Jesus. Her response to meeting Jesus in that space, her response to meeting God in that space is this, in John 4:29. after she meets Jesus, she goes back to her village and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, a man who saw me, all of me. Could this be the Messiah? Again, thousands of years later, Jesus meets a woman at the well who's been rejected by everyone. He sees her, loves her in the midst of that, and she goes, God must be God. It's the same idea we have here in Hagar as well. So let's wrap up our story then today. Hagar has Ishmael, but what about Sarai? We can see that in verse, or chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, so that's 11 more years, 13 more years then, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless, and then I will make my covenant between me and you and you greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make, you, I will make nations of you, and kings will come for you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession and your descendants, to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. We have this timeline again. So we have the story of Hagar, and then this, this verse, chapter 17, comes right after, and we can often feel like that was a quick timeline, but it's not. It's 13 years after that story. God assures Abraham Abram once more that he's going to have a son, that he's going to have a legacy. Now, we don't actually see that come to fruition in the story we're looking at today. Next week, we will. Uh, But God assures Abram that that he will come through on his promises and invites him uh, once, once again to trust him. So what do we do with all of this? What is our takeaway for today? There's a lot going on in this story. There's a, there's a, a there, in, like it has been with every story we've looked at through Genesis, we could preach this again and do an entirely different takeaway from it. We, what we've seen in this story, we've seen God's heart break for the oppressed. Him seeing Hagar and going out to meet her in the midst of that and offering her a flourishing promise as well. We see him pursuing the lost. Hagar runs and he goes after her. We saw the messenger of God for the first time, in the Bible, go to a foreign woman who felt oppressed and rejected. We see what happens when we, when, we, when, we, uh, when we take control of things and try to be the gods of our own life, which we've seen throughout Genesis as well. We can mess things up quickly. There's a lot of different things that we could take away from this passage, but the one takeaway that I've really wrestled with this week is actually the timeline We've touched on it briefly throughout the teaching, but there are 24 years between Abram's Abram's calling and the fulfillment of, of God's promise to him. And that's a long time, especially to a Westerner's ears, ours, right? We live in an instant world. We want something, and when we want it, we want it right now. Why take the longer way if there's a shorter way out there? Why work out if I can just shoot up OXEMPIC or something, right? You guys heard about that, right? We don't like the long journey. We don't like the hard work. We want a fast solution, and and so often we'll bail if we don't see instant results. And yet, it's not what we see in Abram's story. Not at all. There's something, we see 23 years between, the, from between him leaving and God actually coming through to fruition. And that's not the only time in the scripture that happens. It happens all throughout the scripture. Later on, we're going to talk about Moses, or not in Genesis, but we'll talk about Moses if you were to read the book of Exodus. Between the, to, between the time of Moses' original interaction with, with the Egyptians to the time he's actually called to lead the Israelites is 40 years as a shepherd. Or Israel, when they leave Egypt, then spends 40 years wandering in the desert. Or when King David is anointed king, he has to wait for a long time before he actually gets to become king. It seems that throughout Scripture that there's something to the long journey that God sees as important. There's something about our growth in faith that must be to our benefit to not go quickly all the time, but sometimes learn things along the way. It's why we talk so often here about the next step. Faith isn't just something that you you learn who Jesus is and there it is all all together, instantly. It's something that we grow into over over the course of a long time. It's something that we work at, that we figure out how to do better. How do we get rid of certain things and add different things in? And so I wonder if that's something that we've lost in Western Christianity. I even wonder if it's an area where we miss God often. We try to speed God up. No Jesus and everything's perfect. Just that's it. Now miracles can happen, absolutely. God can work instantaneously. That's not what I'm saying. But that's the exception, not the norm often. We see it in this story. And we've seen it through Genesis. That God is a God that wants the best for us. He pursues us. He guides us and points us towards himself and the life that he created us to live. And in this case for Abraham what we see in this story is that sometimes that path is long. My guess is that some of you have experienced that as well. I think one of the things that that is a detriment to many of our faith lives is that we want to hustle it up that fast. Sometimes even in Christian media we see that as soon as that is, I found Jesus and that my life was perfect. And yet my guess is that many of us in this space, that hasn't been our shared experience. Our faith life is a long journey in which we have to put the hard work in to learn all of those things. That in the discipline, by disciplining ourselves to, to, to constantly put away the things that are hurting us and walk towards the things that help us flourish... We grow in the midst of that to become the kind of people that God wants us to be. Skipping the journey skips the benefit as well. Now that doesn't mean it's not hard. It clearly is. It can be incredibly frustrating at times. And if you've ever lived in that space where you don't, you're not sure where to step to next, you know how frustrating that could be. Can we just get this thing moving? But as we see in this story, and always we see throughout many stories in Scripture embracing that journey will bring you to a better place than not my guess is though that for some of us it might even be a, a that we also might be in a place in which we feel like we need that we might be in a place in which we can relate to abraham and sarah i've been waiting long enough rebecca mentioned she's in a time of waiting right now if you've ever been in one of those you go like okay i've waited for this long i got to do something and the temptation is then it grab control of it and force the issue In the case of Abraham and Sarah, they didn't slow down and ask God, hey, what's going on? It's been 10 years. Can we get this thing moving? Clearly, we must just do this thing. And out of that, chaos ensued. I think so often we can do the same. We can press or force the issue. Clearly, this is where I've got to go, so I'm going to hammer into it. In the spaces that I've done that in my life, it hasn't always worked out well. The places where we see it work well in scripture are when we slow down, and in this case, as a community, ask ourselves, hey, where is God going? Can, I, can you guys give me insight into this? Where is he leading? When we tend to do that, sometimes we'll say, hey, what, actually, you are in the process of where I want to lead you now because the waiting is part of that. Going through this season of needing to learn who I am and that you can rely on me even when it's not happening instantly sometimes is the step we need to take in our faith. It's been amazing how many times I've walked with somebody, and Becca's story works perfectly. That keeps happening with Next Steps, too, so keep doing that if you can, randomly. That's awesome. Uh, in, which, in which, when we do go through that waiting, we look back and realize, wow, that waiting actually enhanced the end experience altogether. Would you agree? Yeah. It's not easy. It's hard. It's frustrating. And sometimes, just, you want to just shake God and say, hurry up, please. But that's the beauty of the community that we have. We've been called into the long journey of faith. Eugene Peterson says it wonderfully. He's passed now, but he was a wonderful uh, writer. He wrote the Message Bible, if you're familiar with that. He's also wrote a number of other wonderful books. But he says it this way. Faith isn't a sprint. It's, It's a long obedience in the same direction. Actually, that's the title of his book. I found that to be true. I think we see it in this story here. So my encouragement to you this week is if it's been a minute since you've checked in, hey God, where, are you? where might you be leading? Do it again. Invite some friends to come to, to, to discern that with you. If you feel like God is distant, try to see if you can find him on the path. Maybe he hasn't forgotten you. He hadn't forgotten Abraham. Maybe you're just walking a long path. My guess is, that if we're willing to faithfully do that, we'll have more stories like Becca's today. In which the outcome and the experience is that the journey itself was part of the, f- the flourishing that God had intended for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you right now and realize that uh, perhaps sometimes we don't check in where you're leading as often as we should. God, pray, we pray that you make the path that you've laid out for us clear, where you want us to go, where you're leading us, where you're directing us. Pray that you give us perseverance and patience to make it through sometimes the, the long walk it takes for us to get there. God, my prayer this morning is that we can all see the direction you're headed and also experiencing the, experience the flourishing that you desire for us, even amidst the hard work of the waiting. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.